The seventh commandment we're looking at tonight is, you shall not commit adultery, and that's taken from the NIV. The Message Bible has it more simple. No adultery. And for some balance, the King James Bible puts it as such, thou shall not commit adultery. A Bible published in 1631 in London by Robert Baker and Martin Lucas has it famously put as, you shall commit adultery. This version has now become known as the Wicked Bible, sometimes called the Adulterous Bible, sometimes called the Sinner's Bible. And the majority of the copies of this Bible were cancelled and destroyed immediately. And only, only ten copies of it still survive, and one of them's in the British Library. And as an aside, one of them recently sold for $90,000. One word omitted. Now... I normally like to start a talk with my own personal experience on the subject matter. (laughs) However, tonight I am delighted to tell you that I have no personal experience whatsoever. But let's go back to the NIV version. You shall not commit adultery. Five relatively simple words. But what do we mean by adultery? The Oxford English Dictionary defines it as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not their spouse. So the Seventh Commandment is rather clear-cut, and it is quite tempting to sit down at this point, but I guess I should delve a little bit deeper. As we know, God is, after the deliverance from Egypt, in the process of nation-building to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But why is this commandment so important for the formation of Israel? Indeed, it comes second only to you shall not kill, in the list of how one person is to treat another. And a speedy read-through for some of Leviticus explains why these commandments were needed in order to achieve this. So Leviticus 18 says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And a little further in Leviticus 20, it continues. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them, so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, and I abhorred them. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has set you apart from the nations." God is calling this family of Israel together and is setting rules for this family unit. 
the children of Israel. In a sense, the entire Torah, the law of God as revealed to Moses and recorded in the first five books of the Old Testament, is really the rules and history of one large family. But within the Torah, we find many specific commandments designed to regulate the individual family unit, such as, you shall not commit adultery. And hopefully, hopefully, it's obvious why this could be corrosive if you're trying to establish a nation, let alone God's nation. I mean, not much nation building is ever going to happen if you're constantly keeping an eye on what the person is doing with your spouse. And trust between humans is quickly going to evaporate. So merely practical and logical reasons, adultery is not desired or desirable. But as always, there is so much more. Now I think at this moment it might be useful to see what Jesus says about adultery. And this is taken from Matthew 5, and it's part of the Sermon Mount. Jesus has this to say. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than whole body going into hell. <sighs> Shall we be honest here? These words from Jesus might be just a little bit too uncomfortable for us, for anyone to hear. And I'll confess now that they are uncomfortable for me to hear. But what does it mean to look lustfully? Personally, Perhaps we all know the answer to that one. But just for the sake of clarity. Now, God doesn't forbid us looking. David Runcon, in his book, Exploring Spirituality, puts it this way. Our human passions and desires are something positively God-given, not a problem to be solved or overcome. Now, this does not assume that what we will be desiring is right. But it is an important affirmation to start from. It is disordered desire that is condemned in the Bible. God actually gave us this desire, and we must seek a relationship with them, which should be fulfilled in the confines of marriage. These desires... Well, they can shape our lives for good or for ill. They can empower us or destroy us. And one of those disordered desires that Mr. Ronkon is talking about, being condemned in the Bible, is lust. Lust sets in when our, guy, our gaze has sexual overtones. It is where we desire the person in ways that are only reserved for marriage. To put it simply, it's undressing a person with our eyes which means our heart. I think it's good to have a word of warning right here, right now. Jesus is not saying that if you're already lusted, well, you might as well carry on through with the act of adultery, like as if it's too late. 
Rather, Jesus is saying that at the very core of adulterous behaviour is lust, so deal with it. If we want to please God, then we must set parameters or boundaries. Jesus says, deal ruthlessly with the first signs of lust. Plucking out eyes and cutting off hands are deliberate exaggerations. After all, I am sure, I'm positive, that someone can have lustful thoughts just as well with one eye as it is with two. But they do make the point very forcibly. So today, in our society that thrives on sex and sexual enticement, we need to use restraint and be careful with what we allow ourselves to see, think and do and put limits and stay within them. Okay, I've now used the S word. And people's hackles can get up with that one. But I need to pause and tell you to relax and not get too uptight when we talk about the subject of sex. You're here because of it. There's only been one virgin birth, and I'm sorry to say it's not you. Now, I have got a joke in here. If my teenage kids were at the back, I was going to say, of course... The exception is you two, because your parents have never had sex, but they're not here, so that's all right. But it is time to dispel a few myths. The vast majority of the people out there we might come in contact with today will not connect the word God with the word sex. Actually, the only thing they think about the notion of God and sex is that God is against it and wants merely to spoil their, their perceptions of fun. And we Christians do not fare any better. We are thought about as being hung up about sex with accusations that we view the whole subject as dirty and that human sexuality is shameful. It's not hard to do a Google search, although perhaps sex... No, don't. Don't do a Google search. But words linked to Christianity and Christians are words like repressed, archaic, and prudes. And I'm sure you probably can think of a few that, that uh, fit the, uh, the description. And let's be honest, the history of the church's attitude towards the subject over the centuries has not been good, from Paul to St. Augustine to the present day. And quite honestly, there's probably a whole other sermon series on that point alone, the history of the church's attitude to sex. If anyone is brave enough to pick it up. But the main point is that these are words that our culture uses when they think about the Bible's view of sex. And they couldn't be more wrong. I mean, just take time to read Songs of Solomon. It starts like this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. And that's just the start of the book. And it doesn't stop from chapter 2. The man says to the woman, Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. And she replies back, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved. Among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, 
Refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his, and his right arm embraces me. And it continues in a similar vein throughout the whole book of Solomon. Definitely not repressed, definitely not prudish, although I'm not quite sure about the raisins bit. God created our sexuality for our enjoyment. Sex is God's wedding gift at every marriage for them to enjoy with each other in the strongest and the most serious of all covenant relationships. And the OT book, Song of Solomon, is an entire book that celebrates the enjoyment of erotic love in the context of marriage. So maybe, just maybe, I hope, it's time that the church claims back the wonder, the joy, the awesomeness of intimacy. Time to claim we're not prudes, but that modern-day culture has got us wrong. If we, the followers of Christ, have been slow to address this subject, modern-day culture certainly hasn't. In fact, it seems obsessed with it. Today, our digital media, television, film, music, society, portrays most sexual behaviour as harmless and morally neutral. So long as it occurs between two consenting adults and doesn't hurt anyone. It's used to sell everything from eau de parfum to toilet roll. People turn to it as a route to self-pleasure, to fulfil our desires, often using the other person as the means to an end. It has become a commodity. Lusting after others... It's rooted in self-pleasure. It's making sure that we are the centre of the universe. We need to be in control, and in the end, we are our own God. It's a deceitful first to make sure we are satisfied in whatever way. And this leads to addictions, controlling relationships, and a poor sense of what it makes a man and a woman. But enough bashing of modern society, I think. As Steve said last week, part of the reason for the commandments is to enable the Israelites and us to value, value human life in general and to enable enhancing life. God made our sexuality for intimacy. It is the closest expression of intimacy where we're not only united in body, but also united in mind, soul and spirit. Now, no matter how much people might try, when they sleep with someone, they don't leave their souls at home. They're united not only physically but spiritually. What this means, I think, is that our intimacy is our most precious gift we can give someone else. And we tarnish the preciousness of that gift if we're so casual with it. Okay, let's try and put this in plain speech, a call, incorporating the seventh commandment. If we are not to commit to adultery, what we need to do is actually commit to a loving spouse as best we can. We should have eyes for no one else. All our devotion should be totally focused on them. To truly love them is to ensure that this gift of intimacy is only, is only given to them. Is it hot in here? Now, I need to be really, really clear right here, right now. I'm not personally making any judgments about any situation or about anybody. 
And I have quite deliberately steered clear tonight about any discussions on subjects like divorce, homosexuality, remarriage. I can't make any judgments on these subjects because I'm still trying to figure them out myself and I haven't come to any conclusion. But be fair on me, after all, there's many far better knowledgeable, wiser people that still find themselves tied up in knots about this subject. But in saying that, the very heart of the matter is how we regard other people. There is no way we can possibly put a value on a person precious in the eyes of God. To God, each and every person is absolutely and utterly priceless. In the eyes of God, they are unique. So we should take care on how we treat one another. And that also includes in the area of intimacy. So to conclude, the most important thing is not whether we are sexually active or celibate or married or single, but whether we are living in the expectation of Christ's coming kingdom. Amen. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you, I think, for this subject matter. But it is an important subject, and we have to have honest and open and frank talks about these things. It's part of life. So in the coming days and weeks, help us to clarify your thoughts on this subject and how we might tenderly and compassionately and lovingly pass your wisdom in this subject area to other people. But help us just to continually, to continually look at other people as you look at them, totally and utterly precious and deserving of our utmost time. Amen.